Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Well, this time we will dismiss our kids' discipleship and our uh, youth discipleship. So if you are signed up for the elementary school and or the middle school, head on out. Uh, you can meet the team there in the foyer. Uh, for those that are staying with us this morning, good morning. Glad you're all here. If we haven't met before, my name's Tyler. I serve on the pastoral team here. I'm the associate pastor. Uh, and we are this morning looking at the book of Joshua. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you turn in them to Joshua chapter 10. If you're new to the Bible, by the way, that's okay. There's a table of contents. The beginning of the Bible will help you find Joshua. It's book six in the Bible. And when you get there, notice there's a bunch of numbers on the page. The big numbers are chapter numbers. Little numbers are verse numbers. So you're looking for a big number 10. And just so you guys know, as we go through this passage, much like when we looked at Joshua chapter 6, we're going to encounter a few points where we need to do some apologetic work in order to make sure we properly understand the text. We're going to need to think about how the text challenges our modern mindset, and we need to approach it carefully so that we know we are not rereading the text in light of how we would like to understand it, but we're allowing the text to actually shape how we approach it. So we are going to, uh, we are going to take Joshua 10, which is rather long. We're going to take it in three chunks this morning. So we're first going to look at the grace and the wrath of God in verses 1 through 8. Then we will look at God's work in tandem with man's work in verses 9 through 15. And we will look at the end in verses 16 through 43 as ha- at how Joshua points back to the promise of God and forward to the victory of Christ. So that's what we are doing this morning. Let me pray for us, and we will jump into the text. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, as we have already said and sung, holy is your name. We sing that so frequently here. We read about it often in the scriptures. And Father, we ask you to help us see your holiness in this text. Will you open the eyes of our hearts and the understanding of our minds so that we might behold you more clearly, worship you more fervently, that we would put that we would put that you would put in us an ever-expanding desire to know you through your son, Jesus. And in knowing you through him, that we would carry that knowledge to the friends, the family, the co-workers, the fellow students, the neighbors whom you have placed us around. We trust that you are with us this morning and in us this morning and among us this morning. So would you speak through your word. May the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth, be honoring in your sight and edifying to my brothers and sisters gathered with me. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Joshua 10, starting in verses 1, looking through verses 8. As soon as Adonai Zedek king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors." So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jarmuth, and Jap- Japia, king of Lashish, and Dibir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their army and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gigal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servant. 
Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up to Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So we need to take these first eight verses as a unit because they set the scene for us in a crucial way. We won't understand what is happening in the rest of the text unless we understand the scenery about the narrative we're reading. And crucial to understanding the scene is meeting this character named Adonai Zedek. And Adonai Zedek, we don't learn much about him, but we do learn four key things. And each of these four key things tells us something important and gives us a depth of nuance about the text in front of us. So let's look at these. First, his name is Adonai Zedek. Seems pretty obvious. We know his name. That's a great first step. That name means the Lord is righteous, or my Lord is righteous. So, right off the bat, seems pretty good. At first blush, that seems like a good thing. You've got a king whose name is my Lord is righteous. But here's the problem. Righteous there is not a modifier, but it is a proper name. Best scholars can tell the word Zedek in our English translations is the name of a Canaanite god. And so what you have here is you have a king who is named for a false god. I want to come back to that in a minute, so keep that in mind. But the second thing we learn about Adonai Zedek is that he is the king of Jerusalem. And this gives us a hint about the problem of sin among the Amorites. You see, we have met a previous king of Jerusalem. In the book of Genesis, which chronicles a time 400 years before the book of Joshua, we meet in Genesis 14, 18 through 20, a king named Melchizedek. Genesis 14, 18 through 20 says this, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, that will become Jerusalem, king of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So right off the bat, what we should do is notice the contrast between these two characters. Keep in mind that the book of Joshua is describing the time immediately after Moses, and church tradition and scripture would tell us that Moses is the author of Genesis. So Joshua would have known well the stories Moses told and wrote. And so I think what's happening here is we are getting an intentional contrast between Adonai Zedek and Melchizedek. Their names are both similar. They both have Zedek in them, which is the word righteous. And since Melchizedek, too, is a Canaanite king and a king of Jerusalem, nonetheless, we might be tempted to read that Zedek, that righteous, as the same false god as Adonai Zedek. But I don't think that fits with the reading of the text. Moses tells us that, that Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. So what's far more likely than Melchizedek's name being a reference to a pagan god is that Melchizedek's name, which means my king is righteous, is actually a reference to Yahweh. The Melchizedek's name is a uh, descriptor of God who is both God and king of the cosmos, and his character is a righteous character. But over centuries of theological drift over assimilation with pagan culture, and over separation from God's covenant people. You have a transition from God's character as righteous to the worship of a pagan god, now called righteous. Which is to say that where once a priest king of God ruled, now a pagan king rules. And this pagan king has so little memory of Yahweh and of Melchizedek that he chooses foolishly resistance and rebellion rather than covenantal communion when he encounters the true God. He puts himself in opposition to God's people. And notice, by the way, how Melchizedek in Genesis 14 knew that God gives into the hand of his people his people's enemies. And yet here, Adonai Zedek is about to go to war 
with an, with an ally of the people of Israel. So that's the second thing we can see about him in the text. The third thing we can see is two more contrasts. If the first contrast is Adonizedek versus Melchizedek, we can see that Adonizedek should be contrasted with the Gibeonites and with Rahab, both of whom we've met earlier in the book of Joshua. And why do we see this is because they all have the same access to the same information. Adonizedek is described as having heard what happened to Jericho and I. That, by the way, friends, is all Gibeon had when they went to make an alliance. They had knowledge of what Yahweh had done in battle for his people. That is the extent of the knowledge they had about Yahweh, and that led them, deceptively albeit, but led them into a covenant with God's people. Adonai Zedek has that same information, and yet his heart, hardened by sin, chooses battle rather than submission. Remember when we were looking at Joshua 6, we noted how God told Abraham about the sin of the Amorites, the sin of the people that these five kings in our text represent. And he said that their sin was great, but it was not yet full. And so God was withholding judgment so far until the sin of the Amorites was full. God acted patiently towards them. But now, hundreds of years later, we find that they have not repented. That their sin is full. That their hearts are hard. And that their eyes are blind to the truth and the might of Yahweh. This is where I want to come back to the fact that they worship a God named Righteous. Because one aspect of the hardness of their hearts is likely to be the fact that they have their own moral justification. After all, how can what they do be evil when it is done toward righteous? How can their child sacrifices and their sexual cult of idolatry be wrong if it is in the name of righteousness? So often, something in our human moral psychology makes us want to believe that we are on the side of the angels. We make moral and ethical judgments all the time because we tend to think we will stand before a judge of some shape or form at some point in our lives. And something inside of us wants us to know that we will stand there acquitted by righteousness. But often, rather than learning about who that judge is and what his standard is, instead, we change the definition of righteous. We empty it from all of its content, and we fill it up with what we would like to see. We play fast and loose with the moral facts of our lives in order to avoid the psychological or sociological burden of being found outside of the standards of what it means to be righteous. And so here we find a pagan king whose God may justify him in his mind but he does not justify him before the holy God to whom we just sang and whom we just sang about. So too, this will be with us if we modify and augment the standards of righteousness of our God. None of us is perfect, true. But let us be people of repentance rather than self-justification. Let the humble submission that our God is indeed our salvation rather than our good works be our plea. So here's the fourth and final thing we learn in these eight verses about Adonai Zedek. And that is that instead of blessing the Lord's chosen, he goes to war with him. Melchizedek, we saw, blessed Abram, but here his descendant, Adonai Zedek, uses his influence to go to war to rally other kings of the Amorites in order to battle against them. This is likely that Adonai Zedek wants to go to war with Gibeon in order to make them an example for anybody else who would think to ally themselves with Israel. So he is not only battling against the Lord's people, he is actually attempting to set an incentive structure that keeps other people from entering into covenant with God. He is reducing or attempting to reduce the likelihood that others join with Israel in loyalty to Yahweh. 
And for his sin, for his idolatrous loyalties, and for his pride, Adonai Zedek will face the wrath of God. That is what this text is about. And that's an uncomfortable truth for our culture. God's wrath is coming for sin. That is what takes place in this chapter. That is what we are told takes place in Romans 1. That is what we are told will be the end of all things in the book of Revelation. That God's wrath will come against human sin. But we so often want to declare that that's only true of the worst of sinners. The agreed upon, the socially acceptable people to call sinner. The Adolf Hitlers of history will face God's judgment. But the fact of the matter is that all sin will be judged. The standard of God is perfection, not simply good enough to get by. And that, friends, should burden us. It should make us feel condemned and hopeless in the face of that standard. But though we are only eight verses into this chapter of the Bible, you cannot make it to verse 9 without noticing God's grace. Because did you catch that the battle is not first and foremost against Israel, but it is against Gibeon? Think back to who Gibeon is. Last week we looked at Joshua chapter 9 when the Gibeonites, in deceitful ways, came to the people of Joshua and Israel in order to convince them to enter into a covenant with them. Joshua is criticized in Joshua chapter 9 for not first seeking the will of the Lord for this covenant. When the people of Israel figure out that these are not people from a distant nation, but rather going to be their neighbors who live in the promised land with them, they want to kill the Gibeonites, and Joshua and the leaders will not let them, because as Pastor Jim said last week, Yahweh's reputation is now on the line. But what do you have here? A get-out-of-jail-free card. You have five kings going up to battle against the Gibeonites. Five kings erasing Joshua's mistake. But that, friends, is not what happens. Joshua gets word, and Joshua, being told by the Lord that those five kings have been given into Joshua's hand, marches all night to fight against them. Because Gibeonites or no, the amazing grace of God is present right here next to his wrath against sin. God cared too much about the Gibeonites to let them be destroyed by these kings. God's grace was too great to let the opportunity to have Gibeonites bow before his throne of grace in the choir and praise of heaven's song pass by. And so the Gibeonites are not only spared by Joshua's foolishness, they are spared by the grace of God and Joshua's might in this chapter. That is to say, we have not truly, friends, understood our God unless we can understand him both as the destroyer of the Amorites and as the savior of the Gibeonites, the savior of Rahab, the savior of Melchizedek, and along with all of Israel, all of them saved by a covenant of grace. I want to talk about for the remainder of the sermon how God can be both destroyer and savior, but if you know Joshua chapter 10, you know that there is a giant thing that takes place in the next several verses that we need to deal with, because it too challenges our culture. And that, namely, is the power of prayer and the miraculous work of God. So look with me at verses 9 through 15. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Ezekah and Mekedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them, as far as Ezekah, 
and they died. And there were more who died because of the hailstones <clears throat> than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And that, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon. Moon, in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar that the sun stopped in the midst of the heavens and did not hurry to set for about a whole day? There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all of Israel with him camped at Gilgal. Now, if you're the kind of person who marks in your Bible, let me encourage you to mark the verses and phrases in this chapter where you see Israel fighting, or God fighting for Israel. I mean, we see several of them. It appears almost every verse in the section I just read. In Joshua 10.10, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. Joshua 10.11, and the Lord threw down large stones from heaven. Joshua 10.12, and the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. Joshua 10.14, and the Lord heeded the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. You see, the rest of this chapter, if you keep track of them, you will notice the repetition becomes an indicator as to what the chapter is telling you. What the primary point of Joshua chapter 10 is, and therefore how we should interpret the text. The clear point of this repetition is that God fights for Israel, and God's power and active intervention is involved in the conquest of Canaan. If we neglect that fact, then the window dressing of what we see ordaining this text will distract us. The nature of God's involvement will become our focus, and then we will likely understand what that we will likely misunderstand what that is in this story. We will miss how God works on behalf of Israel. It should be said that God is actively and even miraculously involved in this text. There is no way around that. He is involved in the conquest up to this point, in fact. Before this chapter, he has already parted the Jordan. He has brought down the walls of Jericho. He has given Jericho into their hands, so he has already been involved. But in this text, we encounter two cosmic interventions by God. Two interventions that challenge our modern sensibilities. As such, this text will press against us in the ways that we are modernized and secularized. Modernism and secularism are two aspects of the contemporary Western worldview. And I don't often like to use philosophical terminology in sermons, but I want to define these terms and talk about them briefly. What is modernism? Modernism is a philosophical standpoint that values the objective over the subjective, the analytical over the experiential, the mathematical or scientific over the literary or figurative. It's un, uh, I already said it's uncommon, but what we need to understand is it's good for us to reflect on these because our culture is steeped in modernism. And in fact, I would bet you to a certain extent are too. You have likely encountered this in certain Christian communities. In particular, when we see modernism rear its head in relationship to the text we are looking at, it becomes more about how God intervened than that God intervened. The modernist way of reading Joshua 10 would say this. Well, the sun, it says the sun stopped in the sky. Therefore, it literally must mean and can only mean the sun stopped in the sky. And one way of responding to that is that the only way that could happen is that the earth would need to stop or cease rotating. Now, I am not a scientist. You can tell because I use the word scientist, because every scientist I've ever met does not use the word scientist. They tell you the actual nature of the science they study. So you never meet a scientist, you meet a chemist, a biochemist, a biologist. You, you, so I am not a scientist. I'm signaling that with the very word scientist. But I want to say, from my light reading of this, if the earth stopped rotating, that would be bad for us. Okay? 
is the extent of my scientific knowledge on Joshua chapter 10. Therefore, a lot of modernists look at Joshua 10 and they say, well, what is described in this text is literally impossible. Therefore, I cannot believe the Bible. And the second way to respond to it, often a way that comes up in actual debate with those sorts of modernists, is another modern way of reading the Bible that says, well, I believe the Bible, I believe what it says, whether I like it or not, and so the earth must have stopped spinning. The rotation of the earth must have ceased, and therefore, if the fossil record shows no sign of mass death because the earth ceased spinning, then what we need to believe is that God intervened in countless minor ways to sustain life on earth while the sun stayed in the sky. Both of those are modernist ways of reading the Bible. If I had to pick between them, I would take the latter. Because this text quite clearly describes a miraculous intervention of God. And what I have found in my life to be true is that Scripture, at every place where I test it, comes back valid and verified. However, I also want to point out that I do not think that is the only faithful reading of the text. For example, I certainly would not call God a liar if I was having a conversation with him in the kingdom of heaven, and he said, no, the earth did not stop spinning, but I, akin to Genesis 1, created light where there was no light. And on that day, the sun set and the sun rose, and nobody knew because I created another source of light. I would not call God a liar on the basis of that. What am I trying to point out? Here's the gist. We need to be careful about how we read the Bible. We need to be careful about the cultural lenses with which we approach Scripture, and we need to understand that our 2,000 years from the New Testament, and more so from the Old Testament, of chronological distance means that we often approach the text with different assumptions than the author writing them. So I want to posit that there may be another miracle taking place than the actual sun staying in the sky, but I also want to point this out. We tend to read the Bible with a secular mindset as well, not just a modernist one. And Christians experience secularism, and when they do, and when churches do, what they do is they strive to find the most palatable interpretation of a particular text for the outside culture out of fear of losing the next generation. And so secularists may look at Joshua chapter 10 and say, the miracle that happened is not that the sun stood in the sky where it was supposed to be, but rather that Joshua was given the energy and skill to fight and slay the Canaanites with such efficiency that he felt as if he had fought for two days. Friends, that is just quite clearly not what is happening in this text. But the reason why I frame it that way is because, by all accounts, our culture is secular. But not secular, I think you might mishear me when I say that word, not secular in the sense that our culture rejects religion, but secular in the sense to where we are becoming less and less traditionally religious. We pick and choose the aspects of religion that we want. We pick and choose the aspects of spirituality. In fact, when I ministered in Santa Cruz, it was not uncommon for me to have a conversation that would go something like this. You, you introduce yourself to somebody, you're talking to them, and they explain they don't go to church because they are spiritual but not religious. Usually, if you talk to them for five more minutes, you find out the exact opposite is true. They are highly religious individuals who lack all conception of spirituality. Because, by the way, the word spiritual, the first use of the word spirit used as an adjective, you want to know where it is? It's in 1 Corinthians. Never in human history was the word spirit used as an adjective before the Apostle Paul contrasted spiritual with that which is of the flesh. So often our spiritual but not religious friends, neighbors, family members, co-workers are actually just the opposite. They engage in all sorts of religious practices throughout their lives, and yet they are utterly devoid of the true spirit. 
So in secularism, you encounter religious people unmoored from traditional religious practices, traditional understandings of Scripture. And when the church adopts them, they seek to cater to these with palatable interpretations. And I want you to hear me clearly, because right now I am not criticizing any church in our geographic reason. And you know I'm not doing that for two reasons. One is that if you came up to me afterwards and said, were you making fun of such and such church in your sermon? I would tell you, no, I've never heard of that church. Uh, and if I had heard of the church, then the B answer is, I'm probably friends with the pastor there. That's most of the churches in Tucson. And by the way, friends, I have only ever been to one church in Tucson. And right now, in this very moment, I'm talking to it. So I am not, there's no subtext here of who I am commenting about. I am simply speaking about our culture. We need to be careful about approaching the Bible both modernistically and secularly. We need to be careful about making the text more of a felt issue rather than God's actual miraculous intervention. But we also need to be clear about what the text says and doesn't say about that intervention. And here's what I would say is the whole chapter of Joshua 10 tells us this. Joshua's perspective is decidedly shaped by God's power, but not necessarily the Copernican revolution. So in response to the task set before him, Joshua prays that God marshal the cosmic forces of light and darkness to fight for Israel. The created order itself, in obedience to its creator, goes to battle against the Amorites. And quite clearly, that is exactly what happens. So in rejection of secularism, we must understand the miraculous intervention of the text. And in rejection of modernism, we must not bicker about how that intervention took place, about the mechanism by which that intervention took place. Because Joshua's purpose is not to tell us how. It is to tell us that God fights for his people. And the point of telling us what God did is to tell us what we ought to do. The miraculous intervention of God is described explicitly as a response to Joshua's prayer. Joshua 10, 14, There has been no day like it, before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of man. That language, friends, is scandalous. It makes it sound as if Yahweh himself is Joshua's servant in battle rather than the other way around. Joshua has no fear about using that hyperbolic language because Joshua knows the greatest title he will ever receive is actually at the end of the book of Joshua when he receives the same title Moses did where he is called the servant of the Lord. So the hyperbolic language here tells us of the power of prayer. It should strike us and challenge us and prompt us to reflect on our own prayers. And it seems to me that God's role is to act, and our role is to be faithful in prayer, and then to follow. And I think it's also important to point out that the size of this intervention seems to correspond with the alignment of Joshua's will to God's. Joshua, it seems, has learned his lesson of not seeking Yahweh, and he is seeking Yahweh here, and Yahweh says, go to war. And Joshua says, then I need help. Marshal the cosmos. I need light to fight with me. And so light fights with Joshua. Again, we can consider the effects of modernism and secularism when we think about our own prayer lives. Modernism does not like prayer because prayer is not testable. It is not scientific. It is not mathematical. Consider the question, how does prayer work? What makes prayer effective? How would I know if when my prayer was granted or, or just circumstances led to the same thing happening regardless of what I prayed. 
Maybe the answer lies in saying the right words. The Bible says that if I ask for anything in Jesus' name, it will be granted to me. Maybe it lies in living a life holier than that which I currently live. God says that he will grant the desires of the heart of the good person, does he not? Or maybe I simply lack faith if I do not see my prayers answered. Maybe it is that I need more faith. Each of those answers is reasonable from a modern and secular mindset. But very much counterintuitive for the writers of Scripture and their understanding of the world. For there are no two prayers in the Bible that have the same structure or phrasing, so it cannot, friends, be simply saying the right words. Plus, Jesus himself tells us that it will not be our many words for which we are heard. Nor is it about the holiness or faith of an individual, because Jesus himself knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane and asked the Father for another way to save humanity. He knelt and under anxiety so great that he literally sweat blood, he prayed, Lord, can you find another way? But if not, your will be done. As he hung on the cross, he cried out, quoting Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The prayers of the most holy, the most faithful man to ever lived were not answered in the affirmative how he wanted. So friends, it cannot be the faith that we have or the holiness of our lives. You see, modernism gets the wrong answer because modernism trades Christian theism, belief in the God of the Bible, for mere deism, the belief in a God who has made the world and set it in motion and stepped back. Happy to let it run its course. It's okay with a distant watchmaker, with an aloof deity, but modernism is quite uncomfortable when confronted with a God actually involved in our individual lives. C.S. Lewis wrote a fantastic essay titled The Efficacy of Prayer, and here's what he said in it. I have seen it suggested that a team of people, the more the better, should agree to pray as hard as they knew how over a period of six weeks for all the patients in Hospital A and none of the patients in Hospital B. Seems like a cruel experiment, but there's the, there's the early 21st century British for you. Then you would tot up the results and see if A had more cures and fewer deaths. The trouble is I do not see how any real prayer could go on under such conditions. Whatever your tongue, teeth, and knees may do, you are not praying. Empirical proof and disproof are then unattainable. Our assurance is quite different in the kind from scientific knowledge. It is born out of personal relation to the other parties. Not from knowing things about them, but from knowing them. Prayer is not a machine, and it is not magic, nor is it advice offered to God. Lewis's point is that prayer is nothing extracted from a living and dynamic relationship with the triune God of the Bible. Joshua knew this to be true. He learned it at the school of Moses as he stood outside of the tent of meeting. As he would see Moses cover his glowing face when he encountered God. He had forged his understanding of prayer as a relational reality as he too led the people of Israel. And so he is confident in an outlandish request for light to continue on the day of battle. Notice that he prayed the prayer in the sight of Israel. Where do you pray when you worry that that prayer will not be answered? When you worry that that prayer is too big for the God of the universe? That's when we like to pretend we're righteous and we trot out Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when I go and I pray in my prayer closet because I'm uncomfortable saying this out loud in front of people. But no, Joshua says in the sight of Israel, that he needs the light itself to be marshaled on his behalf. 
His confidence is astounding, friends. And by the way, Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 is corrective for us on this. Paul concludes a prayer for the Ephesian church and he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or get this, think. The Apostle Paul is saying, you cannot think a prayer too hard for God to answer. It might not be answered because it might be against his will, but you cannot yourself think something in line with his will that is too big for him to intervene in. There is much more I could say about prayer, but I have to verse 49 to get through. So instead, let me invite you to join us on Wednesday evening where Pastor Jim and I uh, will do a little bit of teaching on prayer and then call us to pray from 6.30 to 7.45. So join us on Wednesday to hear more and practice prayer. And now for the bulk of the chapter. And I'm just going to say this because I know somebody is checking their internal clock. We're actually only going to look at one verse. It's 16 to 49. It's all important, but I just want to look at one verse. Because this is going to bring us back to the thrust of how we put Joshua 10 in context with Genesis 1 all the way through to Revelation 21. So here it is. I'm going to read up to it to give it its proper context. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave of Mecca, And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found in the, and hidden in the cave of Mecca. And Joshua said, roll a large stone against the mouth of the cave and set a man to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue the enemies. Attack the rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. And when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were, they were wiped out, and when the remnant had remained of them, he entered into the fortified cities. Then all the people returned safe to Joshua at the camp at Mecca. Not a man moved his tongue against the people of Israel. So I have nothing in the rest of my sermon about this, but look at chapter 9. The people speak against Joshua. And then if you want to go further... Right here, nobody moves their tongue. Both have to do with Gibeon. Both are about Joshua's leadership. Interesting. We're moving on. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so, and they brought those five kings out, out to him from the cave. And the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lashish, the king of Eglon. And they brought out those kings to Joshua Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And then they came near and they put their feet on their necks. The rest of the chapter will go on to talk about how Joshua in obedience to God goes throughout Canaan fighting against city after city and laying conquest to it. But if we focus on the warfare and the strategy, which is all fascinating and interesting and deep and nuanced, and we could get into all of that, we will miss a crucial question. Why put your boot on someone's neck? Yes, it's certainly a display of power. It is certainly a sign of total victory. But why should the people of Israel choose that as the sign? People throughout the ancient world have done hundreds of things like this. They've paraded foreign kings that they've conquered naked through cities. They've put them in stocks in the middle of towns, locking their hands and, and head out so people can throw things at them. They've mocked them. They've made them court gestures. They've done all sorts of things to them. Why put your boot on their neck? If we can answer that question, then we can answer the question, what separates the Adonizetics of the world, the prideful, pagan, hard-hearted of the world, from the Melchizedeks, the Rahabs, and the Gibeonites? We can ask why some sinners are saved while others are destroyed. And here's the answer, that when we read the scriptures, when we read the Bible, I've already talked about getting in the mindset of the author, we have to understand that this was an oral culture of people steeped in the stories of their ancestors. That Joshua would have understood, would have spoken in the language of, and with the grammar of, 
the creation story of Moses. His mental framework would be things like light and dark, day and night, good and evil. He would have thought about the importance and the number of days, the order of creation, and he certainly would have thought about the fall by which all sin entered the world. And he would have thought about a serpent that lied and who received a curse. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. You see, as you go throughout the scriptures, serpent imagery is constantly used for the enemies of the people of God, and along with it, the image of damaging the head. For the Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, one scholar notes of the Egyptians, the Egyptian textual evidence declares that Pharaoh was able to control all of Egypt because he was imbued with the power of two goddesses. The two goddesses and the sovereignty they imparted to Pharaoh were physically represented on the king's crown in the form of what? An enraged female cobra. So the serpent-crested diadem of Pharaoh's, of Pharaoh symbolized the power, sovereignty, and magic which his gods endued him with. It was an emblem of his divine force. Isaiah 30 does not think that this is irrelevant, but it picks up on the serpent imagery connected with Pharaoh in Egypt. And there are myriad examples of the prophets saying of Egypt that when God rained down plagues upon them, that that was him putting his boot on their God's necks. So too, we can think of Goliath, who in 1 Samuel 17, 5, is described this way, having a helmet on his head of bronze, he was... Uh, armed with a coat of mail, the literal Hebrew translation would be armor of scales, the skin of serpents. And what, pray tell, friends, happens to Goliath? But the Lord's anointed crushes his head. By my count, there's at least four to six other examples, depending on how you count them, of God's enemies and the enemies of God's people being cast in serpent imagery and with crushed skulls. And I think Joshua knew that this was the promise, and when he writes, and when he talks about, and when he had the people of Israel symbolize the conquest of Canaan, he had them enact a symbol that was a sign of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And so when we read Joshua, we must never forget that we are reading a story that begins in Genesis 1. But we must also never forget, friends, that that story continues long after Genesis 1. We have been talking as we go through the book of Joshua that Joshua in this book is a pointer to a greater Joshua, a greater Yeshua. One whose salvation will be greater than that of the Israelites' conquest of the promised land. We have been looking at the book of Joshua, yes, but we have been looking at it in order to look through it to the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the greater Joshua. And in Joshua 10, we see one of the manifold pictures of who Jesus came to be, and that is that he came to be the serpent-crushing Messiah. And this also offends our modern sensibilities because it points out three things. First, it points out that we have a real spiritual enemy, that not all things can be categorized by the materialist substances that we encounter, but that there is a real spiritual force of darkness which our God wars against and which we can encounter in this world. Second, it is a reminder that this world is enslaved to that enemy. Many of you have talked to me as we've gotten lunch or dinner or coffee over the 18 months that I have helped Pastor Jim in shepherding this congregation. Many of you have mentioned that you feel culturally homeless and increasingly so in our nation. Friends, a biblical theology of nations and kingdoms will tell you that is exactly how you should feel. 
by God's grace, we may live in a democracy, and with that comes the blessings of a vocational responsibility of a democratic citizen. So vote and participate in whatever way you are legally allowed, but do not forget that first and foremost come the ecclesial responsibilities because this nation is not the kingdom of heaven. The only outposts of the kingdom of heaven in this world are local churches. The empires that the Bible describes always drift towards the demonic. We will always be homeless in this world until the one who has prepared our home for us calls us there. Third, it reminds us that one of the greatest lies of the enemies is that we belong to ourselves, that we get to determine the structure of our lives, the morality of our lives, what is right and wrong, and we get to expend our lives as we see fit. The difference between sinners saved and sinners destroyed is where one puts their hope. They put their hope in demonic forces. They put their hope in cultural comforts of the world. They put their hope in sinful flesh. Because the only hope of the saved is this. Our only hope in life and in our impending death is simply that we belong in body and soul, in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, and to our God and Father. So let's pray to him. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your miraculous intervention on behalf of your people. Sun, moon, and stars are at your beck and call. Light and darkness itself are forces which you use to accomplish your means. And so, Lord, we thank you that you warred against the Amorites. But more so, we thank you that you warred against Satan, the world, and our sin that dwells in us. And that your instrument of war was no longer the sword of the Israelites, but the cross of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you first and foremost for him, the serpent crusher who crushes the serpents in our own hearts, the serpents in culture, and ultimately, our great enemy, the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. And so, Father, we await that time. We ask that you come, but in the time in which you stay your hand of sending your son back to us, Lord, we ask that you save many more sinners from wrath against sin. We ask that you collect many more souls, many more lives to enter into your kingdom, many more who would stand in the place of the Gibeonites, praising you around your throne of grace at the end of all things. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, and we pray in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, for these. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.